1: Today, on Off-Tackle Empire, with all but a handful of Big Ten teams either in free fall or trying to climb out of the bucket full of crabs, Cider mill season was in full swing this weekend, but did your quest for donuts that turn mid as soon as they're cool cause you to miss any compelling action in the most stereotypically autumnal football conference? Tune in and find out this week on Off-Tackle Empire. Your source for Big Ten talk, it's Off-Tackle.
0: EMPIRE!
1: Welcome back to Off Tackle Empire. Off Tackle Empire's Big Ten football podcast and the only Big Ten football podcast on the internet that was conceived specifically to take the piss out of you and your team's fans. I am, as usual, Steve Braun. I also go by Thumpasaurus on Twitter. Uh, I am our Illinois correspondent, and I am joined by my trusty sidekick, and the guy that actually puts together the uh, outlines for these things, Michigan State correspondent, Andrew Krzyzewski.
0: Indeed, and for a quick behind-the-curtain moment here, When I'm outlining, sometimes I get a note of inspiration for an interesting opening. Sometimes I don't, and I have to kind of make it up or or leave it to you to make it up. But on a few occasions, I know I've gotten you to read one without, say one rather, without reading it. And so I am the one who staked you to the cider donut opinion that is probably going to get you as much hate mail as anything you've ever said about I mean, who would you say we've gotten the most hate mail from so far? For me, I think it's just the one Rutgers guy every off season. But I also don't check the email account that I associate with this. So even the way that people think they have... Oh, my God, I haven't checked that work. in quite some time. Yeah, it's probably... Like, you'll, you'll think about it and be like, well, it hasn't been... Oh, wait, it was definitely... Yeah, a different guy was president when I last looked at that.
1: Well, the thing is, I feel like this particular donut opinion applies mainly to Yates and its imitators. Um, the, around here, yeah. Yes, around here. Now, uh, on the other hand, the uh, Curtis Orchard down in Champaign, uh, more similar to Blake's as far as the donut style is concerned, as in maybe they don't get give the boost for the freshness, but they stay that quality for longer. Once again, I always, always, when I go down there, Every Sunday, if I stay too late, I just convince myself I'm not gonna house this entire thing of donuts on the way back.
0: I told it you is to put. A lie. When you when you told me this, I suggested that you just put them in the trunk, and you're like, "Yeah, but I gotta stop for gas." And then I'm near the trunk. I was like, "Are you a bear? <laughs>
1: <laughs> am I not?
0: <laughs> am I am I truly not?" In proximity to roll donuts, I guess the the distinction gets a little blurrier. I would actually opine that actually the best cider mill in the state, let alone the area, is over north of Lansing, and that would be Uncle John's. I haven't been there for a long time, so it's a long way to go for donuts. Big fan of
1: Uncle John's, but boy, I will fight people about Yates.
0: Yeah. Anyway, we say all that to say that, at least around here, a lot of folks were out at the cider mills this past weekend with Michigan and Michigan State, both on buys, Illinois, as well as Nebraska. So... A slim pickin of conference games, especially in terms of games that would have been competitive on paper, we got a couple that played out. Especially, well. I mean, especially the
1: folks around here. There's not just that the two Big Ten teams that are local, you know, as well as America's Big Ten team for the time being, uh, were were run by, but also people that were in the know got the rare chance to watch. A Detroit professional sports team in the playoffs so there was not as much of an appetite for college football around here
0: yeah where Detroit City once again remains the main character despite being an expansion team in the league they're in
1: nevertheless <laughs> had
0: teams that did not make the playoffs feeling the need to tag them and fire their shots and boy it whatever you gotta do for engagement man look we've been there we played the SEO game do we not uh and a real, the only reliable way to get engagement as a USL team is to get Detroit City involved in whatever you're doing, so...
1: Because there are actually fans. Uh, there, there are a lot of, you know, fairly satisfied fans in the Detroit City fan base. I cannot say the same for the Iowa Hawkeyes, who put up a tremendous defensive performance in a 54-10 to 10 loss.
0: Yeah, you know, I actually... Did not think Ohio State was going to cover what I, I think started at like a 28 29 point spread in most places because I like it, you know, look, that is a lot of points against a really good defense. But what I've, the obvious angle that I overlooked here is that Iowa's offense was so bad that they repeatedly put their defense on a tee. Well, the thing about Iowa's
1: offense is they're bad at getting yards per play. But prior to this game, they really hadn't been horrible about turning the ball over.
0: No, they had, again, like the fact that they've been in as many games as they have and have won three this year is because, is mostly because if their offense isn't doing anything, it's at least putting the defense in good spots by not turning the ball over, giving Tory Taylor ideal position from which to punt and pin the opponents deep, and the defense goes to work from there, and they do the scoring. That's how it's supposed to work. That all changed in this game when suddenly an offense that was its usual awful self in terms of production, in terms of production, also just retched up a bucket of turnovers. Um, I think four total by Petrus, a couple interceptions and a couple fumbles, and then the backup Padilla finally went in. They're already down several scores. He also immediately lost a fumble through an awful pick. And by the way, then set up Ferentz to say, and again, like we saw this on Twitter, like you, I, I don't somebody know, predicted, somebody this predicted the this game, exact thing, like that this exactly would happen. I was this good, was a yeah.
1: chessboard, like a chess master move by Ferentz to gonna get her shit kicked in, preemptively yeah. deflect criticism of, you know, his handling his quarterback. By simply throwing Padilla in in a hopeless situation and being like, "Well, well what, what do you want me to do?" You turn the ball over. It's <laughs> not like, look, our <laughs> offense is just as good with either quarterback in there. So I'm <laughs> going to go with the guy with more game reps.
0: And in that case, in this case, not even untrue to say that it looked equally unimpressive. And the thing, like early on, the, the touchdown that Iowa got—you guessed it—defensive touchdown. They have
1: more defense <laughs> and special teams touchdowns than offensive touchdowns. This is this is true. They have two more,
0: and it's we're now seven games into the season. Like that's the kind of thing that's that's a weird outlier through two games. We're now seven games into Iowa's schedule, and that remains the case. Saw again earlier this season. You saw buyouts circulating for various coaches, where it's like, wow, is that guy really on that? Saw the number for Ferent, which is currently around forty-two million. They it never drops, it's fully guaranteed the entire time. So, I'll it, tell really, you what, it we only skipped drops right back over the Ferentz buyout jokes coming back. We skipped over the jokes, yeah.
1: We skipped over the jokes to fans talking about it for real.
0: It but yeah, like I said, it only drops insofar as with each game coached, they will owe him less money by paying him for that week. So, we there were
1: Iowa former Iowa players tweeting during the game, yeah. about about how bad this offense is. I, I, I think, uh
0: Jaleel Josie Jewell
1: was on there, Jaleel Johnson, several of these J guys. Um, but th- yeah, there's several several former Iowa guys, recent former Iowa guys, talking about how good this defense is if they only had enough. I mean, everybody knows, everybody knows what the deal is at this point. Yeah. And everybody also knows that there's just really no pressure to change it. Holding the top offense in the land to 5.8 yards per play and 3 for 13 on third down should be worth something but again without the turnovers even 2.68 yards per play for the Iowa Hawkeyes offense so all Iowa ends up being for a team like Ohio State is just a really tough training exercise for their offense all
0: you're doing is helping them yeah they're just it's just a, a it's week in the like, look you know okay we can't we
1: can't really get much defensive training done but here we're going <laughs> to simulate what it's like to go up against a really elite defense
0: yeah, and even though it's a home game, it's somewhat like turning the horseshoe into a hyperbolic time chamber or something, and just getting a few extra reps in, stretching your time out during the season. You know, it's better than it's better than scrimmaging in a bye week, I suppose. Uh, yeah, man i I don't know what the, I don't know what the solution is here because the thing is, it's. I mean, on the handful of plays that I did watch in this game, because again, horribly uninteresting, horribly uninteresting game there's no part of this offense that works and this is I know we're a broken record on this and it's not it's also not the only team we said this about but man like if you think about other teams that struggle like Indiana basilette can still wing it like a lot of the time nothing good happens but he still is a live arm uh, northwestern has Evan Hull who's a multi-dimensional running and receiving threat like, and not... they
1: also went to their backup quarterback with pretty decent success this week
0: yeah. And so it's they're trying things. Yeah, when Iowa has shuffle guys out, like they have yet to reinsert Gavin Williams as a starting running back. I don't know if he's not fully healthy, but he played enough in this game that's like you know maybe they make that move. Um, They have the true freshman Caleb Johnson, who's looked okay on a couple carries that he's gotten. Maybe they give him more reps, but it's like you know we were saying this last year when Keegan Johnson flashed as a wide receiver, they barely throw him the ball. What do you I do when you're Iowa and it. you can't run outside <laughs> zone? What do you do? Uh, we're seeing it. I <laughs> mean, we're seeing it, and it's. I mean, there was a play. I don't. I wish I had bookmarked exactly when it was so that people could take a look at it if they want. But there was a play. It was It was a third down, I believe, a passing down, and Petrus takes the snap under center, I believe, and by the time he gets to the end of his drop, both tackles have been beaten by an identical swim move to the inside by the end. So, like, takes a snap, step, and there's, like, two guys, like, Harrison and Sawyer, I believe, are, like, both ready. Like, who is going to get there first is the only question. Identical moves. And, again, these offensive tackles are not young. Like, I think it was Plum and Richmond who were on the field. These guys have played, I mean, Richmond's case, I think a full season and a half. Plum's a senior, like – this offensive line is terrible and it's historically been something so, I mean, where
1: this is really not
0: they at least have a baseline of competence there but they don't even have that this year it's really
1: not even something where necessarily I mean certainly you want to again be trying things but you can't pin this on on Spencer Petrus. sorry no uh, I mean, a post he's... in the in the Packers subreddit about uh, you know using the Joker meme about uh, are you suggesting that we'd be better with Jordan Love? Yes, and I'm, I'm tired sorry. of pretending that we're not. And I'm just like, <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I mean, Jenkins was pretty bad at left guard, but I think Jordan Love would need to really get <laughs> a full season of, of the weight room before he can take over at left guard. He's healthier than where Bak- the problem is. He's
0: healthier than Bakhtiari, right? So, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, all that this offense has is we can fling it to Laporta once in a while, but it's pretty the book is pretty well out at this point. Like you just double that guy and nobody else on this team is a threat. They rarely throw deep balls. They don't have anybody who's a threat to catch them even if they do. The running backs are nothing special. The offensive line is below average in either run or pass blocking. Like if you're an offensive coordinator who oversees this, the question does become what do you do here? (laughs) The answer is cash big check.
1: Yeah, and for you know for Kirk Ferentz, what he will tell you if you ask him is, well, we're seven games into a season, and we'll evaluate things at the end of it. But, you know, I don't think they're going to win out.
0: No, but, you know, if they beat Northwestern next week, or, yeah, this coming Saturday, rather, they go to 4-4. Four and four, I don't know. You know what? For the sake of... They already played Rutgers. <laughs> they did already have their easiest game. They certainly... They we played all go. of
1: their East yeah. games.
0: Yeah. So,
1: so they're, they're going to play pur- Purdue. Purdue, which, uh,
0: Nebraska, Wisconsin, I think are all still left on the schedule. Yeah.
1: I, uh, Minnesota.
0: So what's the road to six wins here? And if you get to six wins, so what, man? You're like, This roster should not really be in a point where they have to be terrible for two years or three years to be decent for one. But that's still the cycle of Iowa football. I don't know if the attitude around the sport allows that anymore. Even with an athletic department as malleable as the one run by Gary Barta, like it, I, I truly don't think that as long as Barta is there, is in any real danger. But I think the fans at some point have to start tuning out. That's I mean, it's been a while since I specifically watched an Iowa game with an, an Iowa home game with an eye on the crowd. There's an argument you made, though. Like, I don't recall there being a lot of empty seats at any point there this season. If they're still it showing takes up...
1: multiple seasons, though. It takes multiple seasons of, thi- but to, of, of, this... of this kind of... Yes, really. To chip away at that hopelessness, um, at, at that hope. I mean, I was recently looking at Kansas's descent into, like, 15,000-person crowds. You know, just because... You know, I'm always curious, tracking the, the rise and fall of attendance as they've gotten, you know, back to, to, to sure. sold out. And it... it it, it did take, it did take multiple seasons of being the worst before people really started to. And they never had like sellout streaks necessarily, but uh, yeah. I mean, basically, you, you can't do this again. You get one of these, you better win the nine or ten games next year. Yeah. You can't do it's, this again. And the question is, where? What is? What is the path from here to there?
0: Right to not like next year. What's the what is the difference in how this team comes out next year that makes you think oh they're going to win nine games and be right there for the West in the last couple of weeks of the season? Because I sure don't see it. Not with the coaching staff's mindset. That's the worst thing. It's like honestly, if you have players that just aren't quite as good as the guys who came before them, that happens sometimes, right? Like think about like MSU in 2012, for example. Andrew Maxwell had all the ability on paper. He was not Kirk Cousins, nor was he Connor Cook. And there were a lot of other problems around him. You know, offensive lines, unhealthy receivers, couldn't catch the ball, et cetera, et cetera. Why are you making me talk about this, Steve? But <laughs> the point is, it just didn't work with him. But they went to another quarterback, and it very much did work from there. I don't know what the solution here... Like, again, he just could take another year. We're not necessarily seeing the end of this. But even if he doesn't, as has been pointed out a lot of times by our Iowa folks... If you put Alex Padilla in this situation, he's set up for failure too.
1: Look at twenty twelve Iowa, for instance. I mean, they they had quarterback problems, and uh, yeah. I, I don't remember. Was it was it Bethard that took over the following year, or was it? Ruddock? That
0: was later. Bethard took over in fifteen. Okay, so this still would have been Stanzi and Vandenberg. Stanzi was gone by then, so it was just Vandenberg. Vandenberg and, and whoever came after him before by Rudock.
1: Rudock, yeah. That position stabilized in twenty thirteen.
0: But it wouldn't be, there's, there's no one thing where, so like I said, if you put Padilla in here, okay, there's still a bad offensive line in front of him. There's still running backs who can't make more than two yards a carry. There's still no receiving threats on the outside, and Sam Porter will be gone. So what exactly is there to make you think anything about this changes? Especially if, even if you replace all these guys with the Ohio State personnel, for example, you'd still have an offense that philosophically does not want to try the ball more than six or seven yards down the field that's C. an easy J. thing to defend
1: and for cj stroud i mean in ohio state all this was was like a shonen anime arc where like oh oh no it's this new thing that i haven't really seen before and then then your main character you know is making mistakes and he might be might be kind of down bad but then he figures out what to do and he overcomes the, the adversity and then he's learned a new skill and now he and his friends are going to go back out on the road and, and go in quest
0: yeah, and now it's if they see another good cover two defense this year, they'll be fine. <laughs> so yep, exactly. So. You've, congratulations. You've inoculated them against against cover two. Um, okay, so other game in the noon slot, Indiana 17, Rutgers 24. So depending on the state of Michigan State's defense when they play, which I, I've come to feel reasonably optimistic about, even if we get hand-blasted by Michigan this week, this game might have been Indiana's last shot at a win this season. And with each passing week, their opening game takedown of Illinois looks stranger and stranger. Although, perhaps, uh, Rutgers' loss to Iowa is aging worse. Yeah, man. Um, Well, alright, so we'll we'll stick with the Indiana part for a bit. So, first of all, Basilak continues to not quite putting up the numbers we need for that record attempts pace in a season. He's not going to obliterate it, but... He's up to 379, which is just one behind Will
1: Rogers for the national lead. 47.4 attempts per game. That would have him finishing the season with 568 and a half, just an attempt shy of tying
0: the Big Ten record. He's been in the low 40s last couple weeks. though. But the top five all
1: have bowls included, so the 12-game record is a mere 521. I believe in you, Connor. <laughs> Let her rip. <laughs>
0: So as for the Rutgers side of this, they move to 4-3, and three, gets them back on track for a bowl game. And with Sean Gleason out, the change in offensive philosophy was pretty apparent. They got back to playing one quarterback the whole game. And no, Noah Vedrill certainly did not light up the stat chart, completed 12 passes. But plainly, the offense flows a lot better when it's the same guy calling the plays making the adjustments. You get for your signal color in a rhythm. Yes. And again, like, again, not that his rhythm was especially good. It was it was very much a white people trying to do the electric slide at a, at a wedding rhythm. But it's still a rhythm. Mike
1: Gesicki hitting the gritty.
0: Exactly. Um, they also leaned more heavily. Again, with Gleason, it was like, the, it really felt like even a full season and a half into it, They didn't have any idea who they wanted to get the ball to, and if nothing else, now they are pretty clear on that. They want Vedral to be a guy running the system under center as a quarterback, and they want Samuel Brown, the fourth, their freshman running back, to be the guy getting the huge majority of the carries. I mean, in the past they they divvy it up evenly, they shuffle who gets more carries every week. That prevents the running backs from getting into a rhythm too. But now they're turning it over to Brown, who we mentioned in the preseason as a guy that they were likely going to play pretty heavily right away. One of the more talented guys in their recruiting class. I think he's probably got a decent shot at conference newcomer of the year. I don't know how that works for a guy like Charlie Jones, who is new to his team, but not the conference Uh, outside of that. I don't know who else is going to have even a reasonable argument. And maybe Trey Palmer, depending on how Nebraska doesn't mean they'll certainly have the media poll. Uh, But anyway, this offense isn't menacing at all, but with with steady personnel, it feels a little steadier.
1: So, thing is, we, we we did talk about still thinking Indiana's defense was pretty good, and it's turning into more of last year where it kind of doesn't matter because Indiana got out to a fourteen nothing lead, and then after that, um, they well, that's not three and out, but that's four plays and out. And they had. Uh, a three and I mean, they, they basically just couldn't stop going three and out for the rest of the game.
0: Scripted plays ran out. I mean, that's <laughs> how many times do you have to say, like, we see teams that jump out, look really good, and then for whatever reason, the offensive coordinator just isn't able to use what he saw from the scripted plays to construct a game plan for the rest of the way. And yeah, a field goal in the fourth quarter were the only points they had after the end of the first. Of course, they, they missed a
1: field goal that would have tied it, and then... Uh, Adam Korsak, who was a huge reason that Rutgers won this game, uh, pinned them deep in their own territory where Bazalek made a terrible mistake.
0: Yeah, well, and that's, again, so if you look at their play-calling balance now, we commented ad nauseum almost every week that Indiana has a game. We said, man, they can't run the ball. They're really bad at it. Well, this week they had 19 rushing attempts to 42 passing attempts. Not a huge volume of plays either way, but still tells you they understand that they're not good at running it but because they turn to such a pass heavy game script, it lets the defense react accordingly. So now you complete 24 passes for fewer than 10 yards per completion it tells you that there's no menace to this passing game either. Um, and so that's how you end up with things like the pick six where defensive backs are able to jump the route knowing that it's not going not likely to be run very deep. and again, like, Indiana has the receivers to run a more vertical passing game. They don't have the offensive line, though. Bazelak's not mobile enough to buy time in or outside of the pocket. And an offensive line that we've commented on often with their deficiencies in the run game showing up in the pass game as well. It's a problem that Tom Allen has not been able to fix. And given the skit that they're currently on, it feels like it may be the thing that keeps them out of a bowl this year. And I again, uh, I mean, I It'll assume... be the thing that
1: keeps them out of a bowl. They they have three wins right now.
0: Right. Well, in the schedule, they have the rest of the way. So they're off this week. And then it's Penn State, at Ohio State, at Michigan State, Purdue. So, yeah, that's that's a far cry from a... from. They, I mean, they have to upset either Penn State or Ohio State to get to a bowl. <laughs> like There's no other way to yeah. do it. So... so
1: it feels like... Tom Allen has just a long enough leash to get one more shot last, or next year, which means, you know what this sets up for? If he fails, we're going to get another one of those great September coach firings that are all the rage now.
0: Um, I wonder if it'll be that early. Um, it'll be interesting to see because, you, honestly, you know what I think is going to play a bigger factor than I bet is actually true, but it'll feel like that from the outside. If Mike Woodson has a good yeah, season this year, go he's gonna buy Tom Allen's space. I think going there. Because I'll be like, I don't get. I, I mean, again, how Indiana would it be if their fans to be like, I don't give a shit. We won two games in football, almost hoop season. That's all that tells me. So, I I know it feels a li- probably not entirely in touch with the reality, but yeah, I think if you're Indiana fans, would tell
1: you that that's how the athletic director is likely to approach it.
0: Yeah, and look, if your fans and especially your boosters are like, "Eh, you know, this football thing really sucks, but look, Woodson's got them boys playing good ball. I mean, you know, and they end up buying him more. What I'm saying, and all all that I'm saying with that, by the way, is I don't necessarily know that he's a September firing next year, which is kind of damning with faint praise. Because I don't know what's... I mean, again, they've got Basilak Tuttle just announced he's going to transfer. So Basilak's definitely your guy. I believe he's eligible next season as well. But... What do they fix? I mean, like, how do you rebuild an offensive line in one season? The defense, I think, is much closer to doable, but it's still, like, they... they,
1: they, I think Taiwan Mullen's out of eligibility.
0: His little brother is on the team now, though. And I think... I actually don't think that's true, because he played a lot as a true freshman, so he could come back. Presumably, he will try the NFL, but anyway. um, They've also got two first-year coordinators, so... You know, one who left for another job, another who was fired to cause those openings. Are you really going to spin the wheel with another new system? Like, what are the odds if you choose to go the replacing the coordinator route? What are the odds really, especially on the offensive side, that a guy is able to come in? You basically would have to successfully execute what Western Kentucky did with Bailey Zappi. You'd have to, the most likely route for that to work, in my opinion, would be that you... Find a lower division coach who has an entire offense constructed, installed with players with eligibility left such that you can pull it off to bring, hey, come here, run Him your offense of his with your quarterback, two or three of your receivers, a couple of your offensive linemen, um, and let's buy ourselves more time to then install a longer term solution with you running the offense. That's really the only thing I can think of, and I don't know... From a head coaching perspective, that really feels like Tom Allen's vibe. Firing a first-year offensive coordinator who was handed kind of a bad situation to deal with to try to go that route. That would have been the thing they should have done before this season. But they pass on that window. It's now a very long and difficult road to get to a bowl game. Man, Rutgers, on the other hand,
1: there's not really... I mean, Michigan State and... Uh... The between Minnesota and Maryland are probably going to be their best chances. Michigan Nebraska State. was a
0: hell of an opportunity they blew. It was. So, of their remaining games, right. You don't assume that Michigan or Penn State are going to be likely candidates for an upset. I mean, really, the problem is their two remaining home games are Michigan and Penn State. <laughs> yeah, three that's... more winnable games, Minnesota, Michigan State, Maryland, all on the road presumably Tanner Morgan will be good to go for Minnesota off of a concussion this week and their offense will look something more like its normal self. Michigan state, man, that game better not be in the air for them. And then with Maryland, again, I don't believe Tungle-Vailoa's injury is viewed as season ending. So by the end of the year, by you know, another month from now, certainly I have to imagine he would return. Uh, it still feels much more doable. They, they, have three realistic opportunities to get two wins. Indiana has four really all unrealistic opportunities to get three, even if you want to put Michigan State in the toss-up category, which, again, if my team loses to either of the teams in this game we just finished talking about, I will be furious! Make no mistake about that. I can write a lot of things off. I've gotten to a point in my sports fan life where I'm patient about an awful lot. Part of that is just being in and around Detroit sports other than DCFC. but Oh, you mean how, like,
1: Dak Prescott apparently was, like, intentionally decided he was going to come back against the Lions because he knew he'd, like, put up some super good stats against their defense? I don't know that he necessarily did that, but it didn't matter because they won
0: 24-6. to So that would be true if the Lions really weighed on my thinking. I think it's really just, like, the the miasma of that team being in the sports air in this town kind of exposes you to like, look, things could be worse is my point. So, but yeah, Indiana, Rutgers, those got to be wins. They really do. Or, or we got a problem. So moving into the afternoon slate and over to the West, Purdue 24, Wisconsin 35. Despite them having a very solid season to this point, I don't think either of us encountered a single Purdue fan on our site or elsewhere in the college sports internet who viewed this matchup with anything but existential dread, like well, cert- certainty that they were going to lose. We, we did
1: get uh, an angry reply from uh, someone who I later did some digging and found out he's a Purdue Anon fan oh boy. Who, who was very mad about, about the article that one of our boiler contributors posted about the long losing streak to Wisconsin. Um, uh, as we engaged this person on that, uh, his, his account then got suspended for presumably for um, um,
0: slurs, abuse of language, you know and general terms election
1: system. misinformation, things of that nature. A l- awful lot of chief avatars are gone for that reason. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but in any case, that it, was look, the only. That was the only particularly strong argument that I saw by Purdue fans against this whole Wisconsin thing because...
0: And that's one way to deal with a 15-game losing streak, even when your team looks like the better one on paper. It's just be like, no, I know how this game's going to end. I'm not investing this at all emotionally. It's a smart decision by a school with a lot of very smart people associated with it. So Wisconsin rolled, uh, albeit with a much more balanced deck. Usually when Wisconsin comes in and just lets the air out of Purdue's tires... When the boilermakers are looking up, it's by just running them over on the ground. Just yeah, the train metaphor is um, overflow from the mind, so I will not bother to choose one. A much more balanced attack in this one, and I just it makes me wonder, you know, with the streak that Indiana basketball has at the Cole Center in particular, what is it with programs from in Indiana being like constitutionally, like at their atomic level, incapable of beating Wisconsin for? Generations at a stretch. And I don't mean like generations of players. I mean, generations of people have been born, grown up, Our adults now, have never seen these teams beat Wisconsin. Well, I mean,
1: Wisconsin's also just been a very consistent winner. Um, Illinois just won their first game in Madison since. They're not Ohio State,
0: man. Like, they're consistently good, but they're not that
1: good. They consistently beat the programs below them in the pecking order. That's a thing. Yes, that is true. So, what happened here really is the first quarter is what happened. Wisconsin yeah. went down and scored Wisconsin. Uh, the thing I've noticed about Wisconsin's offense is they do very well with, again, the scripted drives. Um, they they execute very sharp for their first few series. Uh, it's a matter of once, once you get down to, once we get past that stuff, how well can they keep it up? They did that admirably in this game, but... Uh, The second touchdown for Wisconsin was on a pick six. Purdue then took over and drove down to to the Wisconsin red zone and missed a short field goal. Uh, Wisconsin scored to make it 21-0, and from then on, Purdue controlled the time of possession. This was not the uh, important stat to be controlling.
0: No, but it is, and again, I'm trying not to be old-fashioned football guy who wants to establish the run, dominate the line of scrimmage, control time of possession, but sometimes it's... I don't think it's that that I want to get at, as much as If you have something that's working, why don't you do it more? Because Devin Mockaby was running for almost six yards a carry against this Wisconsin defense for a huge portion of the game. But they kept going to the air. I mean, the, the pick six, as you mentioned, was at the beginning of the game. I believe O'Connell still threw three interceptions in this game. Um, and I understand that when you fall behind, you throw more to make it up. But they fell behind with lots of time left. Lots and lots of time. And they do have... One of the very few offenses in the Big Ten that runs effectively enough that, you know, if you get to a point where there's only seven or eight minutes left and you're still down two scores, okay, now throw it every down because that might actually work for you. But until that point, it felt like they had a clear road to a more run-oriented game script. They finally found their running back and they still don't want to use him in well, big Well, I mean...
1: The other you know the counterpoint to that is just that Wisconsin was playing the pass because they had such a big lead that Maccabee found more running room.
0: So take seven yards of play and then score. you keep their offense off the field. You need this score is the is the point. And if they're making you use a little more time to do it, they were down multiple scores in the second quarter. Like there's plenty of time such that you don't have to act like... I just feel like in some games, with like a two or three score deficit, coaches go into, it is two minute time. We must be throwing every down to shorten, the, you know, to lengthen the game and pres- and preserve our chances. And I think it just tends to harm them more than it helps in a lot of cases.
1: I mean, really this game fundamentally was over when O'Connell threw his second interception um, to, you know, that was returned to the Purdue 14 with a 21 to 3 deficit because... yeah. I know 28-3 to is the most dangerous lead in football, but...
0: That happened once. <laughs>
1: um. <laughs> but yes, that's the whole thing. It uh, Kansas came a lot closer to making up a 28-3 to deficit than did Purdue. Yeah. So um, from,
0: from the Wisconsin perspective, this is another data point of hope for next season that Graham Mertz actually claims a decent portion of the promise he had as a recruit. Um, you get another game that suggests Skyler Bell and Kamari DK can be a capable one-two combo in this, in this conference. Also another example of the kind of game plan that's going to work for Mertz right now, outside of those scripted drives, which is a lot of rolling pockets, a lot of throws to the sidelines so he doesn't have to read the positioning of defenders all that carefully. Just get to a spot, throw to a spot, have your receiver get to that spot. And Braylon uh,
1: Allen and Isaac uh, Garendo each had runs of over 40 yards Alan, yeah, Alan did over. end
0: up going out of the game for a while. He returned to the sideline, and they said he could play if needed, but Garendo was doing fine, so I believe they did not tempt fate. I don't recall seeing Alan return in the late stages that I can think of, but again, I was channel surfing. I was doing various yard works um, that I was. I cannot pretend to have the same level of exquisite, accurate play-to-play detail that, I was, that our listeners are accustomed to.
1: I, I was... I was kind of surprised that Purdue lost, but the manner in which they lost didn't surprise me that much because right. it 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 feels like you never get just one pick off of them. You know, it feels like once yeah. they press, you know, they get down and they press, they are vulnerable to making more mistakes when this happens.
0: And that is on O'Connell and there's maybe a little reminder there when that happens that You know, as long as Jack Plummer was on this roster, the quarterback situation was never entirely settled. Uh, And at times like that, you can see why, because he does have enough of a belief in his arm and his command of the offense that he's going to force things sometimes. So, all right, we'll keep moving here. The other afternoon game, Northwestern 24, Maryland 31. Even without Tungle-Vailoa, as we sort of suggested in, the lost preview episode from last week. Maryland had little trouble moving the ball with a more ground-oriented attack. Roman Hemby was the best player on the field for large stretches of this game. They still made a lot of the kinds of mistakes that opened the door, even for a team like Northwestern. Uh, they got into a goal-to-go situation. I believe ended up committing a false start or some other kind of formational penalty. Ended up blowing the goal-to-go possession. Had to kick a field goal and missed the field goal. Uh, Northwestern had their opportunities to win. It was really only the fact that, again, like, so I was a little bit of a bad trope. And they are well on their way to having Mike Loxley's best season. Let's not overlook that. But what really locked this up for Maryland was a careful execution of a detailed game plan. Was it, you know, superb management by the quarterback synergy between the offensive coordinators game plan? Like, was it, was it well-executed football? No, they just had a running back who ran faster than all of Northwestern's guys for a 70-yard touchdown. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's what, that's that's what broke it open. Now, the, the highlight Recruiting. That Recruiting is what ended up winning this game, in other words.
1: Yeah, the highlight, of course, on that play was the uh, offensive lineman for the Terps. <laughs> uh, Jahari Branch. Yep, yeah, cartwheeling into the end zone.
0: 330-pound, a, a thick wheel, if you will. Uh, getting the personal foul for it, but, hey, it's after the touchdown is good. You go ahead and have fun, man. I I don't think that should be a flag. Um, So, yeah, with Billy Edwards running the offense, I mean, they're going to be leaning on the run as long as he's in charge. That's for clear. It it, it, it looks pretty
1: disjointed in the early going. He he just decided to kind of cock back and throw the ball as far as he could a few times. To to what end, I don't know. But uh, it's really clear uh, watching him in there that... uh, Tagovailoa makes the offense tick here. Of course, they were able to do pretty well by running the ball, but on the other side, Northwestern went to Brennan Sullivan, and uh, they did get picked off a couple of times, but overall, they had their best offensive performance since Week 0 against Nebraska. Nebraska. (laughs) And the question is, does that matter? Maryland was playing seven in the box uh, at the end, and uh, Northwestern was able to find running room. Uh, really, it wasn't so much the, you know, the the long touchdown by Hamby as it was that plus an interception thrown by Sullivan.
0: We're right. So when we say that he's reasonably effective, what we mean is, although he's completing a high clip of his passes, seventy five percent completion, it's for less than one hundred and fifty yards. It's one touchdown and two interceptions. There's. Very little dynamism in this offense, and that hasn't changed. I mean, he also ran the ball 13 times, so that's a little bit of an element that Helinski doesn't bring. Historically, that's been how Northwestern's had their success. High-accuracy, short-distance throwers who can also run the ball themselves a little bit. Um, the 1-2 to two ratio is obviously not ideal, but this is really the profile of your more historically successful Northwestern offenses. That being said, Northwestern does fall to one and six. So if they are in a bowl making mood, here's what they would have to sweep. They'd have to win at Iowa. They would have to beat Ohio state at home and then go on the road to Minnesota and Purdue with wins before beating Illinois at home on Thanksgiving weekend. I kind of doubt it. Uh,
1: my question was not, can they go bowling? My question was, is there any hope of avoiding
0: 1-11? If there is, it'll be next week. That's an Iowa offense that only a mother could love. Uh, what do you think Mrs. Ferentz thinks about how they're doing offensively? Do you think she pays attention at all? I don't even know if Parker's I am still sure in.
1: there is no way you could get her to actually tell you what she thinks.
0: That all depends, though. It is that part of the Midwest where... Folks can be awful passive-aggressive if you, if you get a couple of brandies in them.
1: <laughs> I
0: wonder if there's somebody out there with a story
1: to tell. Well, we've got an assignment for some intrepid listener located
0: in the heartland. Iowa City folks, we know you're out there. If you can make this happen, you know how to get in touch with us. Last game of the Big Ten slate this weekend, Minnesota 17, Penn State 45. Things just got out of hand.
1: So I have a question about Athan Kaliakmanis, right? We remember Tathan Martell.
0: Can we call this guy eight? <laughs> Are they of the same origin? I, you know. I want to call this guy eight. I, look, I don't blame, in, in a situation like this, I can't blame the player, okay? No. What a, what a performance like this tells you, and what we're talking about here in more detail... Well into the second quarter, he had one pass completed for 12 yards. And Minnesota was obviously following a very run-heavy script. The first five plays of the game for Minnesota, which were over two different drives, mm-hmm.
1: were handoffs to Mo Ibrahim.
0: Now, that's not terribly out of line with what they normally do, honestly. And he finishes 9-for-22 for 22 for buck seventy-five, a touchdown, and a pick. So, you know, they, they hit a couple of chunk plays later, but... Well, after the game was out of hand, when a backup quarterback is that unprepared, that's a coaching issue. That's telling you that, again, all it took was one hit to Tanner Morgan, and Minnesota had no chance of winning the game he was injured in and the game that he missed.
1: Because the thing is, it's not like they just added this guy as a walk on.
0: No, he's a guy they recruited to most likely be their next full time starter. The, the other upperclassman quarterback, Cole Kramer, is strictly a gadget guy that they use on the goal line like they used to use Seth Green. He's not a realistic quarterback. He's a running back who takes snaps occasionally. So that the quarterback probably of the future, because it's not really – I mean, they got a couple of transfers on the offensive line, but for the most part, they've recruited the skill guys themselves. But that their quarterback of the future is so unprepared for duty when there's – 6 games left now before he's going to be the one you know the big man on campus. That's not a great sign. Not a great sign especially for a program that prides itself on development so much.
1: I was noting this there are a lot of bad backup quarterbacks in the Big 10. Yeah, right now. There there had been some decent ones, but I mean very unimpressed with with Billy Edwards. Um, well, he's
0: also new to the program. They did just pick yeah. him up as a transfer. He had redshirted at Wake Forest, but he hadn't played. He's still very young. Um, and you can say that about Kaliagmas too, which is that he's, he is young. I forget if he's a redshirt freshman or redshirts. I believe he's still a redshirt freshman. So it's not like either of these guys have a ton of game experience, but it's one thing to have your eyes a little bit wide when you step onto a Big Ten field. It's another to be completely unprepared to complete a pass in a collegiate game. I mean, Maryland, again, to their credit, won both their games so far with Billy Edwards taking over in the fourth quarter and playing an entire game. So, aside from that, though, you know, looking around the conference, I mean, most of the backup situations, let's see. Rutgers is such a tangled mess that I don't even know if you count them. Penn State's fine. They've got a true freshman superstar as their backup. Michigan's tech backup, I guess, is technically Kate McNamara. He's still on the roster as far as I know. Ohio State is going to be good. Noah Kim looked fine when he's gotten in in a couple of blowout losses already for Michigan State. We've seen Padilla mostly put in hopeless situations at Iowa. Likewise, he has not exactly lit the world on fire. Sullivan, I think, could end up being every bit as good as Helinski is for Northwestern. Wisconsin, I don't even know who their guy would be this year. Is it still Wolf? I have no idea. We certainly know what happens with Sikowski. I honestly think Nebraska would be okay if they had to play Logan Smothers, but I think they've also gone to Chuba Purdy instead when the opportunity has arisen. So no, The thing is,
1: Sikowski has not been completely unprepared to run the offense that they're running, though. Right, which is to not throw the ball. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, well, you know... And he's been willing to take off when he's got the first down. He's run the option a few times to some success. Or, he
0: he looks, again, kind of like a baby horse. He's, he's also been willing to take off when he does not have the first <laughs> That's down. That's also true. <laughs> and, and be very lucky that he gets an appendage down in a timely fashion. But anyway, um, yeah, well, look. It shouldn't really be a surprise that there are a lot of really bad backups. There are a lot of really bad starting quarterbacks in this conference, so that the guys behind them are worse should not. I mean, look, this is the league that's giving you Petrus, Simon, Helinski, Morgan, Mertz. It's a disaster from the from the quarterback position for half of the league. They do not have guys that would start at many other P five schools. One thing I thought that was
1: very funny that happened was. Uh, 17-3 to Penn State. Uh, they started wow. calling their timeouts to get the ball back with under two minutes to go. Minnesota yeah. inside their own 20 or something like that. Yep. So, suddenly, Minnesota started to string together a touchdown drive, and now it's 17-10 to at the half. It, it, it kind of didn't end up mattering the way that the second
0: half... Um, but it's just yeah, like... But it was pretty funny. When Sometimes I think people accuse us of just making stuff up without anything to back it up. But look, when we say stuff like... Boy, James Franklin's not a very good game manager. He makes a lot of really wrong decisions in critical clock situations. This is what we're talking now, about. But that was under
1: two minutes to go. They it were didn't up. end up hurting them. But. Yeah, but that was under two minutes to go. And as it turns out, that was kind of the best Minnesota's offense had looked to that point. It ended up being the best that they looked. But like... You know well, what if suddenly that was a thing where they found a groove and now you've got a shootout on your
0: hands? Whereas before, Minnesota was
1: probably content to just hand it off and go into the locker room and try and figure something out in there, yeah,
0: because it was a two score game that probably PJ Fluck probably would not have pushed the issue if you hadn't given him the ball. <laughs> but and the fact that it ended up not hurting them, and also the fact that you can still justify it on paper being like, look. You've got them on the ropes. If you get, like, what about the Penn State offense in the first half told you that you would have been able to drive and score with that amount of time left? Like, yes, Sean Clifford has occasionally pulled big plays out of his pocket. You know, big drives. The Purdue game certainly comes to mind. But does he really strike you as the, the guy like, oh, you have to get, like, the, the, the people used to talk about with Aaron Rodgers. Like, give him any amount of time before half, he's going to score. And if you get the ball again after halftime, he'll put the opponent away. Like, There are quarterbacks like that. I don't think of Sean Clifford that way. No, absolutely not. All right, so that brings us to the end of the Big Ten week. That was as far as the Minnesota side of this game, though. um, They've now gone from four and zero to four and three, three losses in conference, a couple of backbreaking divisional losses to teams that are now ahead of them in the standings. They're not necessarily out of the race for the division yet. But again, as we've hinted at a couple times with their roster makeup, this is the summit year. This is when they're supposed to win stuff. So, same thing for Purdue, by the way. But Purdue's actually still got a chance of doing it.
1: And obviously you have an unfortunate injury to your best offensive playmaker besides your running back in uh, Chris Ogden-Bell. But that is a player that has struggled to stay healthy. He's
0: been injured often enough. And the other thing is, again, your arguably your four best players on offense are all guys who are only around because of the COVID year. You wouldn't have had them in an ordinary circumstance anyway. That they're so unprepared to deal with injuries to those guys feels like a problem. And so the question I was getting at here is even if they study themselves, you know, say they find their way to seven and five. Reasonably doable. Is that really a good enough season in your in your build the year that you have built to your harvest year? And now you're probably looking at a rebuild of a season or two, and then you be getting into year seven, year eight of PJ Fleck without sniffing a conference championship is you really came all this way to not quite get to what Glenn Mason was?
1: Well, if you look at the record, it is pretty similar.
0: To him and also to the combined record of Jerry Kill and Tracy Clays. I know I saw that, but the, other, the other, that, it I think... It is a much more
1: likable program with the is. same record. I will say sure. that. And the if t- you're a Minnesota fan and you can have that record with any of those three regimes, you
0: take this one, yes. obviously. Yes, and trajectory does also matter because it was a very rough first year for Fleck, but by the end of the Mason and... Clay's slash kill eras. as it was becoming apparent that things were falling to pieces. So, it is not the same. And that is where those record comparisons straight up lose context sometimes because a win-loss record doesn't actually tell you a whole lot other See, than the Paul overall Christ. win-loss record. Exactly. However, yes,
1: they did, in fact, sniff a division title one time, but they lost to post Lovey Smith incident Paul Chris Wisconsin.
0: And that was their chance. That was It was there for the taking, and they didn't do it. So we've been brief enough that I think we would go around the country here in the review episode instead of putting it at the front of the pre-cap. So what did you see in the week that was that caught your attention? Well, here's what
1: I saw is Kansas and Syracuse, the other erstwhile Cinderella's, um, without you know the alpha cinderella to inspire them <laughs> Illinois was on by kind of fell apart uh Kansas trying to complete an improbable 28 to 3 comeback on Baylor got all the way within one score 28 23 but it it just didn't it just they just couldn't do it with without Jalen Daniels
0: so so Illinois is the cinder alpha which of Kansas and Syracuse is the sigmarella Uh,
1: it had to be Syracuse I
0: don't know enough about what those terms actually mean because it's only shitty people who use those terms (laughs) so I'll take your word for it um you're 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 right you're online more than I am I'll take your word for it um Texas Oklahoma State turned into an absolute shootout with a hilarious penalty imbalance 14 flags on Texas zero on Oklahoma State none
1: not a (laughs) single one
0: I hope that in another year or two's time, the Big 12 just admits it. Yeah, we set it up. We rigged it. We told them refs, don't you dare throw a flag on OK State. Throw the, bury, the, bury the Longhorns in yellow laundry. Get one of those tubs of the rags you see at like convention starts and stuff. Just dump them all on the field. Bury them. Longhorns ain't going to win this game. Make sure it happens. We, we admit it. What are you going to do about it?
1: <laughs> I want to revisit something from Syracuse Clemson because uh, DJ we fumbled away which was responsible for one of the turnovers, was when he did that, uh, got benched after yeah. committing three turnovers. And I bet you anything he's still going to be, like, number three in somebody's Heisman rankings because, after all, he does play quarterback for a team that's 8-0, and which means he doesn't
0: play running back. Right. Well, and the other thing is Clemson, I mean, you could argue that Shipley is actually Clemson's best player, but because he doesn't put up the video game numbers... You know, it's says D.J. Uyengale. <laughs> but, yeah. he's, but he's got the pedigree, you see. But, so does Kate Clubnick. I mean, he's not going to get Heisman credit, but the other thing is, you got to remember, like, not every top 10 team does get a Heisman finalist every year. They could just leave Clemson out this they, time. But ESPN then, has and, been
1: trying to make
0: D.J. Uyengale happen for a long time. Well, they gave up, though. Right? They gave up immediately last year on that. As soon as Clemson lost the game, it was like... Which oh,
1: I you. want to then...
0: Mention this it is sure starting to look like fun wild west
1: ACC was just some aberration that happened last year when yeah. the mods fell asleep. Clemson,
0: yes, and it was and mods very... are asleep, run air raid. <laughs> 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 there, was, there was also a little bit so post gaudy
1: stat lines, mods are
0: asleep. Remember, you, you had Kenny Pickett under the Mark Whipple fence and Jordan Addison, you right with Addison, you had Sam Howell at UNC. Um... Wake Forest and Hartman are still kind of doing their thing. You yeah, you, you had v- Virginia still looking like a capable team. Brennan Armstrong was funny. Their defense
1: too. is better this year, but their offense has completely collapsed. Like, like it just imploded on itself after hiring again, Clemson's offensive guru.
0: And again, like the fact that they hired a guy again at Clemson New York, with a lot of talent, and we've talked about this before, so we'll be brief, but you hired a guy who comes from having otherworldly talent and talent advantages everywhere. You're still like, Virginia is not always going, is not ever going to have the kind of talent that Clemson does as things are currently situated. But the offense he was inheriting did have NFL QB, couple of NFL caliber receivers. Like he should have been able to make it work for a season. Even if after that things fell to, to pieces that Tony Elliott's had that much trouble getting Armstrong and Wicks and Johnson and all those guys to even function, is He did finally
1: it. get a conference win in one of the stupidest football games I've ever let seen me, in my life.
0: Let me go ahead and... Sure,
1: yeah. Uh, the U was hammered by Duke, who is now 5-3. and three. I Yes, I spelled this like a female sheep in the outline. Uh, yeah. Duke was merciless in their slaughter of the Hurricanes.
0: A couple of other fun stories that we've been following around... The country. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably already aware of the TCU hypnotoad embrace. I have not. I don't remember the last time I appreciated a branding thing. Well, this is probably the best thing since gritty, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, absolutely fantastic. I'm not gonna look again. It's visual medium that we're broadcasting in here, but I encourage you to simply go and look out TCU hypnotoad. Of course, it will help if you have ever seen Futurama. Even if you haven't, I think you'll appreciate it. What is strange
1: is that a lot of quarterbacks have gotten pretty injured against TCU. Dylan Gabriel in kind of a really messed up hit. Then Jalen Daniels, who's missed several games. A mild injury to Spencer Sanders that he recovered from. And then Adrian Martinez and Will Howard, the the first and second (laughs) stringers for K-State,
0: went down. What I assume is happening there is... When opposing quarterbacks look into the eyes of Hypnotote, they just hear the command injure your ligaments in a like a very authoritative tone and they feel themselves compelled. That's all I can come up with.
1: The ranked Green Wave is 7 and 1 and Big Willie Style rides again after people kind of left him for dead last year. I'm
0: hugely relieved. I still I- I I was
1: very upset when things looked like they were falling apart for Big Willie style.
0: On the one hand, I'm sure he will get an opportunity at a bigger location eventually. On the other hand, I love that a school with masterful branding and mascot and color combos gets to be fun like that. So, I kind of... like
1: Every single time Tulane's in a close game, it's it's a treat. Because you know that there is going to be some play call that just... Just knocks your socks off. It's it's fantastic. I, there was, God, there was a couple years ago, he run a fake kneel down to win the game in regulation. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's incredible. And if he doesn't get poached, he certainly is setting up to be uh, Rick Stockstill on steroids.
0: <laughs> I think he's got a higher ceiling yeah. and maybe even a higher floor than Stockstill. Uh, we'll conclude our trip around the country with a quick glance at the coaching hot seat. Rest in peace to... Once upon a time, hot candidate Will Healy of Charlotte let go after an abysmal loss to Florida International. Um, somehow getting the axe before the three guys that I think are all kind of next in line, which is Drinkwitz at Missouri, Satterfield at Louisville, and Harson at Auburn. And of, of course, course...
1: Drinkwitz survived Vanderbilt by three points.
0: <laughs> in a game where I think. I looked at the box score early on, and Mizzou was up like 17 nothing. I was like, yeah, that sounds about right. I figured it would be something like 28 or 31-3. I guess you can't get to 28 from 17, but not field goals. But anyway, also just so of an interesting note of those three guys that we mentioned here. Of course, two of them former App State coaches and another Boise State coach, man. It can be hard to go for it. I wonder if that might be like the hardest jump to make, to go from dominant power five, or group of five level coach to successful in the Power Five, especially in the SEC. I mean, that is it is a jump.
1: Well, the SEC, yes. The ACC, on the other hand, you've got those uh, uh, at least one former former Northern Illinois coach doing pretty well. Uh, Dave yeah, Doran,
0: yeah. But it's also a place where the expectations are generally lower. Louisville, I think. Th- It sounds honestly like Satterfield might have some personality issues that are, it's a little bit of a stretch, but it it sounds, there's, there seems to be more to it. Yeah, because the second
1: Petrino era was so unstable, like everybody knew it was a matter of time before that just ended awkwardly. Yeah,
0: but there seems to be something more than what's happening on the field. Not that what's happening on the field is good, but they're also one of these programs like a Miami or a Texas A&M whose boosters are pumping a fortune into recruiting and they're like, results right now, please. Speaking of, that brings us to perhaps the funniest result of the week. Texas A&M comfortably disposed of by powerhouse South Carolina to fall to 3-4 and four overall. Yeah,
1: they have the same record as Iowa. Some um, record
0: as Michigan State.
1: And South Carolina really never, I mean, it ended up being a six-point game. Not really as close a game as that score would lead you to believe. So that's three losses in a row. For Jimbo Fisher, of course, the uh, the coach of the twenty XDX national champion Texas A and M Aggies. A uh, and M did outgain South Carolina by over a hundred yards, but South Carolina went eight for sixteen on third down, compared to five for fourteen for Texas A and M. So just a couple
0: of notes. Uh, for, again, a little bit of a refresher. So. Jimbo Fisher's contract goes through the 2030 season. If he were to be fired at the end of this year, the total amount outstanding would be $85,950,000. It is fully guaranteed, and there is no offset, which means if they fire him and pay him all that money and he goes and gets another $100 contract from some stupid fan base, they still have to pay him all of that.
1: <laughs> So you... Jameis Winston basically turned... The Fisher family into, like, a European royal monastic house. <laughs> pretty close. Pretty close. What Mon- a monarch house. <clears throat> so, yeah, I guess the other thing I want to mention is an all-time Mike Leach presser in which he was asked what their focus is during the bye week and then started off by saying that the player's just not using their hands well. They're told about a two-minute story about getting dinosaur toys from some gas station whose name he doesn't remember did a little detour to talk about the fake wood finishes on the old station wagons, and then he wound back up with talking about evolution and appendages. So where this left him was being genuine—I'm sorry genuinely concerned, as he's put it, that if the coaches do not reach these players, that these players, by the time they're two, three generations in, their kids and their grandkids won't have hands anymore because they're just not using their hands. I saw a summary of this press conference that that said in parentheses, Coach Leach does raptor arms on the podium. So, yes, Mike Leach very concerned that his players are just his players' progeny will just not have hands anymore if they don't get a little better at coaching. I don't know. It's Mike Leach. Your source for Big Ten Ton gets off tackle empire.